We are in uh, the middle of a sermon series called Come Home, and what we're doing is we're looking at um, 12 books that are in the Old Testament. They're called the Minor Prophets, and they're called minor not because they're unimportant, but rather because they're short. But one of the primary themes of these books is an invitation by God to come back to me. And uh, so over the last few weeks, we've looked at Malachi, Habakkuk, Jonah, Micah, and today we're going to be looking at the book of Haggai. Now before we jump in, I'm going to, in a moment, I'm going to read um, a section from Haggai 1, and then over the course of the sermon, I'll read excerpts from different parts of the book as well. But let's take a little moment and just look at the historical context, because that does matter in understanding these books. So in 605 BC, so this is a long time ago, this is 2,600 years ago, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar marched on Egypt, who was a superpower at the time, and defeated the pharaoh Necho. So this is a big victory. And so in response, Jehoiakim, who was the king of Judah at the time, decided to make a treaty with Babylon so that Babylon wouldn't destroy Jerusalem. So politically savvy, but also uh, going against what God would desire for the people of Israel and Judah. Four years later, Babylon went into another battle with uh, Egypt, and this time they lost. And so Jehoiakim switched his allegiance from Babylon back to Egypt, right? Again, politically speaking, that might make sense. Uh, In 597, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, angered by Jehoiakim's flip-flopping and betrayal, decided to march on Judah, and he captured Jehoiakim. And he deported a large number of the people of Judah back to Babylon. So in 589, a few years later, the new Judean king, who had been actually set up by Nebuchadnezzar, a guy named Zedekiah, he rebelled against Babylon and made a treaty with Egypt. So I don't know if you see a theme here, back and forth, sort of this yo-yo thing. The children of Israel, the people of Judah, instead of relying upon God, are relying upon making treaties with these powers. And so Nebuchadnezzar, angered again, by the betrayal of these people who had uh, made a treaty with him, laid siege to Jerusalem for, depends on what you read in history, but 18 to 30 months. And so there's a huge siege on the city of Jerusalem. Eventually, Jerusalem was overthrown. It was plundered. Solomon's temple was destroyed. And another wave of prisoners were deported. Uh, Mostly the elite uh, young people were uh, taken to Judah, leaving only the poor behind in Judah And so after 70 years of exile, so all these people had been exiled, deported, living in exile, Cyrus, the king of Persia, defeated the Babylonians and allowed Ezra to return home in 538 BC to rebuild the temple. You guys are probably, some of you are familiar with that story. Then Darius' son uh, succeeded, and in 522, he allowed all the Israelites to return back to Jerusalem. And so Haggai is in the second wave of people who went back 18 years after the initial group went with Ezra to rebuild the temple. And what happened was when Haggai got there, he realized that the building and construction of the temple had stalled. And so he's like, what in the world is going on, right? And that's where we find ourselves in the book of Haggai. He's looking at the temple that was supposed to be rebuilt, and instead he sees it still lying in ruins. So let's do this. I'm going to read Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, and then we'll delve a little bit more into this book. So beginning in verse 1, in the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says, these people say the time has not yet come 
to rebuild the Lord's house. And so Haggai's looking at the, build, the temple. No construction is going on. It's stalled. And, uh, and he says, the people, God speaking through him, said, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house, the temple, remains a ruin? Now, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Give careful thought to your ways. You've planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you're not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces on people and livestock and on all the labor of your hands. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that sometimes good news comes in the form of a wake-up call to us. And, um, and I thank you, Father, that that's what the book of Haggai was 2,600 years ago. I pray that it would be the same thing for us today. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be upon us, and I pray that no one would be able to leave this place today without having had an encounter with you, the living God. I pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we have several poets in the house today. I'm not going to draw attention to anybody, but uh, several poets. And uh, let me just ask you this. Um, Who or what poet first made poetry sort of interesting or accessible to you? Just can anybody just shout out a name? Like what's the first thing you read? What, What author, what poet was the first person that made it sort of, all right, I can like poetry if it's like this. Okay, Shel Silverstein is what I'm going for. There's other good stuff too. Music is poetry, but whatever. It's Shel Silverstein. That's the answer that I'm looking for. So Shel, by the way, there's some really interesting stories about him and Brennan Manning and some other people, but Shel Silverstein, if you guys ever, uh, maybe when you were a kid, you had the book Where the Sidewalk Ends, and there are all these kind of cute little poems. Well, one of the poems is called Sick by Shel Silverstein. I'm going to read it, and, uh, and you'll kind of see where I'm going with this. I cannot go to school today, said little Peggy Ann McKay. I have the measles and the mumps, a gash, a rash, and purple bumps. My mouth is wet, my throat is dry, I'm going blind in my right eye. My tonsils are as big as rocks, I've counted 16 chicken pox, and there's one more, that's 17. And don't you think my face looks green? My leg is cut, my eyes are blue, it might be instamatic flu. I cough and sneeze and gasp and choke. I'm sure that my left leg is broke. My hip hurts when I move my chin. My belly button's caving in. My back is wrenched. My ankle's sprained. My appendix pains each time it rains. My nose is cold. My toes are numb. I have a sliver in my thumb. My neck is stiff. My voice is weak. I hardly whisper when I speak. My tongue is filling up my mouth. I think my hair is falling out. My elbow's bent. My spine ain't straight. My temperature is 108. My brain is shrunk. I cannot hear. There is a hole inside my ear. I have a hangnail, and my heart is, what? What's that? What's that you say? You say today is Saturday. Goodbye. I'm going out to play. Now, 
It's a cute little poem, and if you have never read why the, Where the Sidewalk Ends, you need to grab it, especially if you have children or grandchildren. But many of us, like Peggy Ann McKay, and like the Israelites to whom Haggai was writing and, and God was speaking through Haggai, they experience symptoms, right? That's what this whole poem is, a, is a list of symptoms, right, of her perceived illnesses. And symptoms typically reveal some sickness or brokenness within us. That's what we see here in the book of Haggai. That's what we read about in verses 1 through 11. So the question is, what are the symptoms of the, the people of Judah, the Israelites? Let's look really quickly, beginning in verse 6. You have sown much and harvested little, right? And so you're doing the right thing, right? You're sowing a lot, but not harvesting much. You eat, but you never have enough. That one sounds way too familiar. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. The heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld withheld its produce. And then even all the way back into chapter 2, verse 16, when anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, there were only 10. When anyone went to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. And so in this passage and throughout the book of Haggai, the Israelites, the, the people of Judah, have the following symptoms, lack of productivity, gnawing hunger, thirst, cold, poverty, lack of personal fulfillment, vocational dissatisfaction, drought, depression. These symptoms are a sign that something is wrong, something is deeply wrong. And what's interesting about the symptoms is that it appears that they're doing the right things. They've been working, says they've sown much. They're eating and drinking, but they're always hungry and they're always thirsty. They dress warmly, but they're always cold. They're saving and investing. Those are the right things, but instead of becoming rich, they're becoming poorer. Again, they're doing good things. They're doing what seems to be the right things, but it's not working. Something is wrong. Let me ask you a quick question. Can any of you identify with any of these symptoms? Do you ever feel like you work harder and harder, but you make less and less? Do you consume and consume, but do you actually feel more empty? Do you invest financially, relationally, physically, only to feel like you have little to no return? Maybe you've had all these high expectations for yourself Or maybe you have these expectations for your family or for your business or relationships only to have reality fall far, far short of your expectations. Maybe today you're sitting here and you feel empty, you feel lonely, and you feel hollow. Symptoms serve a valuable purpose. They show us that something is not right, that something is wrong. And that's definitely the case here in the book of Haggai. The question is, in this instance... What was going on with the people of Judah? What was causing their symptoms? Again, let's jump into various sections of the book of Haggai. Beginning in verse 2 of chapter 1, Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you to yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. I love that phrase, consider your ways. That's what John asked us to do this morning. Dr. Parker, sorry. So Dr. Parker asked us to do this morning, to consider our ways, to take a moment and just think about the way that we're living our lives. What are our priorities? 
Verse 9, you looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces on people and livestock and on all the labor of your hands. We go to see a doctor when we're sick, and what that doctor will do is that doctor will want to ask us about our symptoms. For what reason? In order to offer a diagnosis, to let us know, here's what I think is going on. So the question is, what's the God-given diagnosis in the book of Haggai? If you remember, the Israelites had been allowed to return home after the Babylonian captivity for the purpose of rebuilding the temple. That's the story of Ezra. When they got there, they faced political and religious opposition from those remaining Jews, some of the Jews that had remained behind, but also some other people that had remained behind as well. These are the people that hadn't been deported to Babylon when uh, they had been defeated. Their faithfulness, the people who have returned to build the temple, their faithfulness to God's calling had been confronted with physical threats to their safety. And as a result, they withdrew and simply began focusing on their own lives. They were afraid, right? They were fearful. And so they were trying to do something that made them feel safe. They were building their businesses. They were earning and saving money. They were pouring their time and energy into their own homes and listen to God's diagnosis. He says this, the reason you're experiencing all these symptoms is that you're making it evident through your actions that you care more about your own comfort and your own well-being and your own safety than you do about having a relationship with me. Fundamentally, the people are breaking the first commandment, thou shall have no other gods before me, and yet here they are, they're, they're having all these other things that are before them and God, and so what does God do? He withholds blessing from the Israelites. They try to save, but he blows their savings away. They try to plant crops, but God withholds the rain. Is it that God wants his temple and he wants it now, like some sort of a, you know, angry child? I don't think so. Remember what happens in the temple. In the temple, the people come into the presence of God. The Israelites' behavior is a sign that unfortunately they care much more about some other things than they do about engaging with their heavenly father. And in withholding his blessing and in speaking through Haggai, God shows that what he ultimately desires is he desires to have a relationship with his people. There's nothing wrong with building homes. There's nothing wrong with wanting those homes to be aesthetically pleasing and comfortable. What is wrong is when we love our homes or any aspect of our lives that, uh, for that matter, anything that we care more about than God. He knows what we desire, and God actually desires to give us the desires of our hearts. But he also knows that what we need most of all is a relationship with him, for it's only when we are walking with him, and it's only when we are truly submitting to him that we can flourish in a way that makes us happy and satisfies God as well. Let me say that one more time. It's only when we're walking with God and we're submitting to him that we can flourish in a way that makes us happy, right, that really fulfills us, but also satisfies God as well. That's why in Matthew 6, 23, Jesus tells us, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you as well. 
So symptoms and causes, but the question should be for all of us this morning, is there any hope for us in this predicament? And the good news is, is that God does offer them hope. The first thing we see that God does is he reminds them of his purpose. Haggai 2, verses 6 through 9 says this, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. Now, this all might sound like the spoils of war coming into the temple of the Israelites, but it's actually much more than that. The treasures of the nations come in not because of war, but rather because of worship, right? They come in not because of victory, but rather they come in because of the gospel. God's purpose is not only that the Israelites would worship him, but that people from every tongue and every tribe and every nation would worship him as well. That's God's purpose. And God knows that part of their depression is a result of not actually having a purpose in their lives or maybe having a purpose that was far too small, right? Having a nice home is a wonderful thing, but it's not transcendent. They needed to see themselves as part of something larger, a larger purpose for this world. There's a man named David Livingston. Some of you have heard of him before, but he was a missionary to Africa. But uh, he records what actually sort of caught his heart on fire for taking the gospel to people who hadn't heard the gospel. He says that uh, he was listening to a man named Robert Moffat, who was speaking of his ministry to the Botswana tribe in Africa. And I'll jump in here really quickly and sort of read a section. Um, He talks about hearing Moffat say this, Many a morning have I stood on the porch of my house and looking northward have seen the smoke arise from villages that have never heard of Jesus Christ. I have seen at different times the smoke of a thousand villages, villages whose people are without Christ, without God, and without hope in the world. The smoke of a thousand villages, the smoke of a thousand villages. The smoke of a thousand villages, he goes on and on to say, and Livingston said after hearing Moffat speak about this and about his passion for these people who had not heard the name of Jesus, he said he went home and he could not sleep that night. He says the lure of Africa had caught him, the lure of a work worth doing, the biggest work that a young man who strives to follow Christ can attempt, spreading the good news about Jesus and ending the evils of the slave trade through the practice of true Christianity, right? He says the smoke of a thousand villages filled his mind and his heart. Says, he says that Moffat's words rang in my ears. So Livingston left England and arrived unheralded in Africa. He who had few gifts but willpower to make his own future and the success of his life. How little did the committee of the London Missionary Society realize when they accepted this young man as a missionary that after 43 years he would be buried in Westminster Abbey and that his tomb in the abbey would be the most visited, it would be visited by more people from the ends of the earth than any other tomb in that mausoleum of the mighty. Many of us are unsatisfied in life because our purpose or our lack of purpose is grounded solely in that which is imminent. Imminent means the stuff that's right near us, it's close by. Our purpose is always and has always been intended to be linked to something that is actually transcendent, if that makes sense. 
And so working out is a good thing, but if you find your purpose in, in working out, it's very imminent, you're not going to find fulfillment there. You know, building nice and beautiful homes, that's a good thing, but it's not where God designed for you to find your fulfillment. It's imminent. Ultimately, God designed us to find our purpose in something which is transcendent, right? You don't have to be a missionary, you don't have to be a pastor, you don't have to work with Young Life, you don't have to work with campus outreach, but you do need to be reminded that as a follower of Jesus, that God has called you to something that is bigger than yourself, your job, your house, or even your family. All those things are good, and yes, he's called you to those in subvocational ways, but God is calling you to find your purpose in his story of redemption, right? That's where you find fulfillment is when you plug into his greater, larger story, whether you're a student, a father, a mother, or a school teacher. And the Israelites needed to be reminded of that, and so do we. We need to be reminded of God's purpose and our purpose in joining with him. The second thing we see in the book of Haggai is that he also reminds the people of his power. Haggai 1, verse 14 and 2, 6 say this, And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came, and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. In other words, God reminds them of his power. So here in Haggai, we see God addressing the sin of the Israelites. You're not focused on me. You're not focused on my house. You're not focused on worship. You're focused on your own comfort, your own security. You're finding all of those things plus your identity in things other than me. And you ultimately what happens is we see that they repent. And part of what gives them the courage to repent is we see God giving them a glimpse of his purpose to draw people from every part of the earth, every tribe, every tongue, every nation into a relationship with him. But he also reminds them of his power. It would be logical for them and for us anytime we receive sort of a high calling to really sort of think about entering into God's story of redemption, it would be easy for us to think that is beyond my ability, right? I don't have the power to do that. That is way too much for me unless that power comes from somewhere else. When I was a freshman at Covenant College, I had a car that we affectionately called the Brown Turtle, it was a, a 1986 Mitsubishi Galant. I have a picture of it here on the screen. That's not actually my car. It's a stock photo, but it's what it looked like. And that one's black. Mine was brown. And um, I bought this car for $2,400 from all the money I'd saved lifeguarding for years. And uh, anyway, so I bought this car, drove it to college. And uh, pretty quickly after getting into college, every time I went to start it, the battery would be dead. And I was like, what is wrong with the, the brown turtle? And so literally over the course of my entire freshman year, if I wanted to drive the turtle, I would have to jumpstart it. But fortunately, I had a pair of jumper cables in the back of my car. And so, you know, we'd go down to my car and be like, all right, I'll take everybody. Everybody load up. We'll go to a movie. And so we'd get down to the turtle and I'd say, but I need to get somebody to jump me off. And so inevitably I'd pop the hood, hook up the jumper cables, start the, you know, the, the, uh, the Mitsubishi going and over and over and over again over the course of the semester, even when people would borrow the car, I'm, one time some friends borrowed it to go down to Atlanta. I was like, you're welcome to borrow it, but you're going to need these. Here are the jumper cables. <laughs> the point is, it needed power from outside itself, right? It, there was basically a trunk light that was on. Who would ever know that, cause, unless you're in the trunk? 
that was running the battery down every time. And so it needed power from outside of itself to start. I don't even remember how we figured that out, but that's what it was. But the point is this, is that some of you in this room are facing incredibly difficult situations. And so your particular place in God's redemptive story is incredibly difficult, right? And so you're afraid, or maybe you're doubtful, or maybe you even despair of the fact that God, you know, could actually use you in his story of redemption. Because where God has placed you in his story of redemption may be some horribly difficult parenting situation. And you may think over and over and over again, God, I don't have what it takes to do what you're asking me to do, right? It it may be a difficult marriage, right? And so it may be that that's where God has called you in his redemptive story. And you may go, God, I've done everything I can do. I, I don't have what it takes to fix this, right? It may be a challenging boss. It may be overcoming an addiction. It could be any number of different things. And you may look at yourself and you may look at the power that indwells you and you go, I do not have what it takes. But the truth is that if you've trusted in Christ for your salvation, then his Holy Spirit does dwell within you. And his Spirit empowers you to do more than you would ever think is possible. Now, that doesn't guarantee that every situation is always going to turn out the way that we hope it would. But what it does mean is that God's Spirit in you actually enables you to be stronger and to do more than you might ever ask or imagine. And so God reminds his people not only of his purpose to see all these people come into his house and to worship him, but he also reminds them that you have my power, right? That I'm the one that's going to enable you to do, to enter into this larger story of redemption. And then finally, he reminds them not only of his purpose, not only of his power, but his presence with them. So we'll look at chapter 2 and chapter 1, various verses. But God, speaking through Haggai, says this, Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Right? How many of us need to hear that? You know, how many of you think you are alone right, in that struggle? right, that parenting struggle, that marriage struggle, that vocational struggle, whatever it is, how many of you think you are alone, and yet God says to you, my spirit remains in your midst? Then the Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. And remember, these people are, they're actually afraid, right, because they've been threatened by the people who remained in the land. They began working on the temple only to have the Jews who were left behind threaten them physically. And here God is asking them to begin again. Like I'm basically God's going, I want you to start again. Like I know you you stopped for a little while because you were afraid. But he empowers them by reminding them of his purpose, of his power, and ultimately his presence with them. So sometimes what moves us to begin again is a reminder that Sin leads to chaos and destruction of us and those we love. Sometimes that's what it takes as a reminder of like, hey, the course you're on right now is going to lead to chaos and destruction. Sometimes what moves us to enter back into God's larger story of redemption is a reminder that God loves us. That's part of what we're communicated in the Lord's Supper. 
Sometimes what moves us is a reminder that we're forgiven because of Jesus' sacrifice. That's also the Lord's Supper. Sometimes we're moved to action by a reminder of God's holiness, right? Sometimes that's the thing that moves us to act again, to enter into that larger story. But sometimes what gives us courage to move is a reminder that God is with us and that we're not alone, right? And that gives us the courage to begin. Probably 12 years ago, um, we were up on Lookout Mountain um, at a friend's house. They had a pool, and a bunch of us had gathered around with our families and with our kids. And at this point in time, uh, Levi was two years old. Levi, I owe you a couple dollars for telling this story. And, uh, you know, I think Levi may have been the youngest kid at the time at the pool. And so all the other kids were going off the diving board, and they were jumping in and doing flips and all this stuff. And Levi wanted to go off the diving board, but he couldn't really swim at the time. And so he would uh, go to the end of the diving board, and I would jump in the deep end, and I would shred water, which 12 years ago was harder because I had less body fat. These days, I could probably do it much easier. But anyway, the point is, I would shred water beneath the diving board, and Levi would jump into me because I was there. I would catch him, and I would swim him over to the side, and I'd put him up on the edge of the pool, and he'd run around to the diving board, back on the diving board. I'd be waiting for him. He'd jump in. Probably did that about 25 times, all within the space of probably, you know, 20 minutes or so. And what's interesting is when I wasn't there, when I wasn't in the deep end treading water waiting for him, he wasn't going anywhere near the diving board. But as soon as I got in the water and as soon as I was treading water beneath that diving board, he felt safe to jump back in. It was my presence that gave him the courage to move, right, to enter into that larger story. How many of you today need to hear that God is with you? Maybe, like the Israelites, you've been ignoring God for 18 years or more, and you need to hear that God has not forsaken you. Right? The Bible says that God is long-suffering. Right? That is good news. His patience is more than enough to wait for us. Maybe, like the Israelites, you've chosen your own safety and security over walking with Him, and you need to hear that God is still there. Right? Some of you think that God has abandoned you. There's no way that God would be patient enough to wait for you. Part of what you need to hear from the story today is that God is still there. Maybe, like the Israelites, you're empty and unsatisfied and unfulfilled, and you need to hear that God remains, that he stays, right? And your job today is, as you hear about his purpose, as you hear about his power, as you hear about his presence with you, that that would actually give you the courage to repent and to turn back to him and to enter into his larger story of redemption. Let's take one moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you that that larger story of redemption is found in the life and the death and the resurrection of your son, Jesus. So Father, I pray that our um, strength today would come from seeing your face in the life of your son who um, loved us and gave up his life for us. I pray, Father, that what would move us is seeing your son coming to earth to seek and to save the lost. And so the life of Jesus would actually be the thing that really shows us who you are and how it is that you feel about us. Father, I pray that we would be moved today to enter into your larger story of redemption and restoration because we know that you are with us. We pray all these things now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. 